0: Would you please uh, find uh, Isaiah chapter 7? And what I'm going to try to do, mad fool, is uh, run through uh, chapter 7, chapter 8, and the beginning of chapter 9 tonight, because we're going to try and take Isaiah in large chunks so we catch the sweep of what's going on. Uh, Having found Isaiah uh, chapter 7 on page page 691, would you go to the very back of your Bibles, please? And would you please put a paw in the air if you're one of those who's looking at a Bible that has maps in it? Good. Okay, but there's a bit of a, 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 a hole over here. Could those who have maps share with those who don't, please, or swap so that everyone has a mappy Bible. Are we sorted? <clears throat> well, 1,600 years ago or so, You've got page 1691, now you go to the back and you've got your Bible and your maps. Okay, right, now 1,600 years ago, the Visigoths, wouldn't you love to be a Visigoth? Would put all those people outside the forum to shame, wouldn't it? The Visigoths entered Rome, the principal city of the Roman Empire, and they more or less destroyed it. It was the end of the greatness of Rome, though Rome was already Christian by then, and gloom, settled across the empire because civilization itself had been destroyed. But across the sea, a bishop in Algeria wrote a book called The City of God. He looked at history as far as it had come and pointed out that the city of God and the city of man will always be at war and that we shouldn't worry ourselves about a little local difficulty like the loss of Rome. God was in charge And would see the city of God triumph because finally God was even bigger than politics and the city of man. The bishop was St. Augustine. There is a story to tell from these chapters of Isaiah. And it's part of the history of Israel. I can't tell in advance whether you're going to find it interesting. But it's Isaiah's claim that it is in the history of his own people... That God is lifting up his city. While the city of man is falling down. It's not that we do a bit of history and then we say, ah yes, and now, here is what it means for us today. That the meaning is woven in with the history itself. It's the history of God himself with his people. And so there's a lot of history tonight, a fair bit of geography too, which is why I've asked you to find a map copy. First of all, let's check time Um, And I don't mean the fact that it's uh, uh, 7th, uh, 29. Uh, I I want to check the time of when we are in our story. We're in the time of Ahaz, King Ahaz now, of the uh, southern kingdom. The grandson of the king from last week, Uzziah, from Isaiah 6. As far as uh, Isaiah is concerned, Ahaz is a seriously bad king. And uh, here is why. At this time, well, let's go to our map for a moment. Let's go to our map. I love maps. Um, What you need is the one that's marked the division of Canaan. Got that? Right, now, um, find the Sea of Galilee... and go north from there. Uh, And you'll see two mountains, Mount Lebanon and Mount Hermon. Have you ever realized that Damascus is as close as it is on that map? It's still there. It hasn't moved. That's still where Damascus is. Um, uh, The the countries that are in this um, uh, story are the southern kingdom... You see uh, the bit where it says, Valley of Jezreel, just below the Sea of Galilee? Well, uh, basically, the bit just below there was the northern kingdom, and then below Shechem is the southern kingdom. Uh, There's a kind of debatable territory up by Zebulun and Naphtali, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. But then where... (coughs) Where Damascus is, where we would now call Syria, you have the territory of Aram. That's uh, important, the territory of Aram in our story. And then way over to the east of that, well beyond our page uh, today, and south of it, you have the great uh, headquarters of the empire of Assyria. Think Iraq, but bigger. Now, at this time, the empire of Assyria was turning its attention... Uh, to its neighbors, Uh, Aram, to its north, and then uh, Israel, which was the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, These uh, countries should, at this point, have been subject to the empire of Assyria, but they were getting a bit kind of restless. And uh, the uh, response worked like this. Rezin, who was the king of Aram, sitting in Damascus, And the king of the northern kingdom, Pekah, uh, son of Ramaliah, sitting in uh, Samaria, have made a pact to resist uh, the king of Assyria when he marches out. And they think they will be the stronger if they can persuade the southern kingdom to join them. And they have marched south from Damascus and from Samaria. They've marched south uh, nearly to Jerusalem to fight Judah and to persuade Ahaz that it's in his best interests to join their coalition and their rebellion against Assyria. But Ahaz, in Judah, in the southern kingdom, is thinking other thoughts. He's thinking, what's my best move here going to be? Perhaps I could get help from Egypt, or perhaps I couldn't. Better still, I could persuade the king of Assyria itself that I've been loyal to you, not like the naughty kings of Syria and Israel, so you'll be kind to me and my people, won't you? And that's the politics as chapter 7 opens. The forces of Syria, Aram, and Israel, the northern kingdom, are practically at the gates of Jerusalem. And Ahaz is terrified, wondering what to do and thinking it might be best to call on Assyria for help. And the word of God comes to Isaiah, uh, <clears throat> verse 3. Ahaz is out of town, uh, just seeing the state of his headache, uh, because he's at the end of the aqueduct that brought water into the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has ter- always had a dreadful water supply, um, and uh, they had to maximize well, what they had. And Ahaz is uh, playing the part of a waterworks engineer. He's at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washman's field. And so when he's there, presumably with the equivalent of a sort of, um, like one of those cartoon dripping hoses, uh, where you just realize how little water you've got, that at his weakest point is when Isaiah is sent to him with a message. God says, take your son, Jeshub, which means a remnant will return, And go and meet Ahaz and say to him, and you've got to imagine this on a red poster with a white crown on the top of it. Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. That's what it says. Verse 4. Yes, uh, they are plotting to destroy you, Ahaz, and to set up the son of Tabeel, who disappears immediately, we hear his name in verse 6. But they don't amount to anything. You need not be afraid of them. You needn't even do anything. In fact, they haven't the power between them to do what they would need to do. Above all, Ahaz, (coughs) and watch my lips, do not think that you can get help by asking the king of Assyria. Ephraim, northern Israel, and Aram, Syria, are going to collapse internally. Stay calm. Verse 9, end of, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And as a kindness, God is happy, Ahaz, to give you a sign that you needn't worry. Verse, uh, that's, uh, in, in, and then in verse 12, Ahaz, who knows his Deuteronomy, says, oh no, not me. I'm not going to test God. Well, it was in the law. But Isaiah has the force of the word of God uh, with him and realizes that it's just an excuse. Ahaz is just making a flat refusal of God's own offer, and Isaiah is seriously hacked off. Okay, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign whether you want one or not. There's going to be a baby born to a young woman. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you want to know why it says Immanuel with an E there and an Emmanuel with an, e, with an I in the Bible and an E in the banner above, it's because Hebrew doesn't have vowels and have to be supplied. And since the, sound, the word is Emmanuel, it's quite difficult to know what vowel should have been supplied. So he pays you money and he takes your choice. Either way, it means God is with us. Now, there's going to be good food for him to eat, curds and honey from the land of milk and honey. By the time he's old enough to know right from wrong, and we think based on other texts that they would have thought that was about the age of three. So good times are coming for this territory, Ahaz, in the south. But by the same time as that has happened here in Judah, Aram and Israel up in the north are going to be laid waste for their rebellion by the king of Assyria. And then, boy, after that are you going to catch it because you wouldn't put your trust in God for your politics. Verse 17, The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. That's the text that we heard read to us. But I'm going to keep going. Uh, I'm going to explain to you now... um, says Isaiah, just how bad the Assyrians are going to be for you. The Lord's going to whistle for flies from the distant streams of Egypt, for bees from the land of Assyria. They're going to come and, like, buzz all over your territory. They're going to settle everywhere. Verse 20, that day the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the river, the river Euphrates, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and the hair of your legs and to take off your beards also. It's not the hair of your legs, it's the hair of your feet. And it's not that they were hobbits, and had hairy feet, it's that feet sometimes in the Old Testament is a kind of euphemism for your private bits. You are going to lose all your manliness, that's what it means, from a people that are proud of their beards. Have you ever seen pictures of the Assyrians, they've got these curled, oiled beards? These men, real men, are going to come in and just destroy all your manliness. It's all going to be pasture that's left. There's going to be no crops left. So someone will have, a man man will keep alive, verse 21, a young cow and two goats. And they're going to have curds and and, uh, honey to eat. The cattle and sheep are going to be turned loose. Verse 25, the conquest will be complete, the land will be occupied, the people will be stripped and be in poverty. The only thing you'll have left to eat is kiddie food. And then another prophecy starts in chapter 8. <clears throat> one of the things that happens in Isaiah is you often get these doublings. We've had one kind of prophecy, and then one very like it, that's just slightly different. There's another child now, Meher Hashbaz, verse 1. Um, there was a, <coughs> uh, an American poet whose name escapes me, but I know he called his cat Meher Hashbaz. Because what it because it was a great mouser, and it means speed, spoil, hasten, plunder. Uh, and before this child of yours, Isaiah, <clears throat> is speaking, the wealth of Damascus in Aram Syria, and of Samaria in Israel, it's going to be carried off to Assyria. You thought, Ahaz that you had problems with the feeble waters of Jerusalem, what are called the gently flowing waters of Shiloh in verse 6. You thought that you had to find a more secure answer rather than just waiting and trusting in God. Well, Ahaz, meet the mighty waters of the Assyrian Empire, the mighty flood waters of the river Euphrates, verse 7 the land will be engulfed and sweep the water will sweep on into judah you are going to be verse 8 up to your neck in it there will be no protection from the bird of prey that is assyria its outspread wings verse 8 will cover the breadth of your land the land that is emmanuel's <clears throat> now shiajashub meant if you remember a remnant will return. And all that unfolds from now on concerns the distinction between the many and the few. Between the many, the powerful, those involved in politics, who would not trust God's word when it came to them, and the few, apparently feeble, who did. We've had this terrible prophecy of judgment all through to chapter 8, And verse 8, relieved only by a prospect that for a few short years there's going to be the promise of this child who will get to the point of knowing right from wrong, who will eat curds and honey, but by the time that has happened, the the rolling rush of judgment is already on its way. Well, verse 9. Well, many, many people, you can do what you like. Devise your strategy, verse 10. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, because God is with us. You can make your alliances and pacts to stand with one another, but God is with us. And then there's a more personal word to those who are few and a remnant, who are not going to follow the people, verse 11. Warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, God said, Don't be like this people. Fear God, not the armies and the empires. For us, God will be a sanctuary. Verse 14a. But for them, He will be a rock to fall over, a stone that causes them to stumble a trap and a snare. No, your path needs to be that of steady faith. you've bound up the testimony, your job is to listen to the law. Wait, verse 16. Wait for God himself. God himself remains Yahweh Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion, verse 18. That's where we put our trust. So don't be like the alternative. They're going to do just about anything to uh, keep their hopes alive. They are faithless to God who lives, verse 19. They are faithless to his word. So we need to remind you to go to the law and the testimony. The consequences for them are calamity. They will roam through the land, verse 21. uh, Despair, they will become enraged, will curse their king and their God. And they will become hopeless. They will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Well, that's history so far. We're going to go on to chapter 9 in a moment. But so far, everything that has happened, everything that's been said, written, makes sense within the history. The child born as Emmanuel, we cannot identify. It might be Ahaz's own son, Hezekiah, who will go on to see uh, lives through the most extraordinary events. He was a king of great godliness, who saw the tide actually turn against Assyria, even though the threat was just postponed. Perhaps it was a child of Isaiah, along with Shearjashub and Mehershalalashbaz. We don't know. We only know that the promise of God with us refused to die, and it was carried forward into a greater expectation. Let's just recognize the gulf that separates us from all of this. If you're talking to John afterwards about a trip to Israel-Palestine, ask him about the inside of 10 Downing Street. Uh, John, because of his uh, work with uh, uh, charities, especially the YMCA, when he was head of it here, had occasion to be asked to... Join the great and the good from time to time. Here's a question for you. If a similar word of God came to you, and you were told to go to Prime Minister David Cameron on his visit to the headquarters of Thames Water and give him a warning like this, what would you wear? And I ask it only because the whole, it puts in context the whole madness, the absurdity of that kind of question. It's absurd, and it's not just because, despite what some may think, the British people and the people of God aren't the same. it's, It's just mad for us to consider that kind of scenario. Let's be clear, nonetheless, that Isaiah is moving in a world in which God is totally sovereign, and in which God moves the pawns around the board, the map, That I've taken you to, exactly as he chooses. And for us, one major lesson here has to be the very simplest one God really is in charge of the nations. And we, his people, are called to live in trust of his good purposes. Now, we live in a democracy. And some of the power of Ahaz as an absolute ruler is now with us. We are those who sometimes may have to decide what to do in the face of threat. And we are those, moreover, who may come under some of the judgment that belongs with Ahaz. Surely this passage teaches us not to be surprised if living as the people of God means that we're sometimes sinful, sometimes inclined to trust, other than to God. The passage teaches us to be realistic, never to give in to that version of the Christian faith that's all white smiles and perfection. It drives us to the humility of knowing that even under the banner of God's promise, we can get things dreadfully wrong. And in one way, we should treat it as a message that could go to David Cameron, even though we can be just as sure as Isaiah was that it would be ignored. What if after all his work in China over the last decades, the Holy Spirit is ready to work across the world not despite the decline of the West, but through the decline of the West? What if what we think of as civilization, as the Romans thought of Rome, actually needs to be destroyed and burned, so that the city of God will flourish? We have more responsibility than the people of Ahaz did. And so, yes, of course we should work for the flourishing of our alliances but there may be a bigger story going on. It may be that we are wondering whether the flow of water uh, should perhaps be channeled this way or perhaps should be channeled that while meanwhile a vast tsunami of water is about to come down upon us and will we be ready? Will our children learn to put their trust in a God who's far bigger than the politics of our day and may even use the politics of his day, in his purposes to ensure that there shall be a people, even a remnant people, and God will be with them. And so to chapter 9, and I've separated it because this is the part of the story where we can't see, we can't account for what happened. There's there's an overflow from this story that isn't exhausted uh, by this history we know. Zebulun and Naphtali. Back to your map. You see them uh, up north of Mount Carmel, between Mount Carmel and the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, notice, is closer to Damascus than it is to Jerusalem. If the Assyrians were coming through, Zebulun and Naphtali would catch the full force of Assyria's advance. And they would be in the terrible, fearful gloom. But no more. And we have to detach ourselves from history. Not even in Hezekiah's day can we say that we see chapter 9 fulfilled. The northern lands were often fighting others. There was great uh, territory way down south called Midian that would sweep up the eastern side of um, the river Jordan, and come and sit into the, the, ter- the plains that, that split the northern and southern kingdom. Uh, and that's why we get the language in verse 4 of the day of Midian's defeat. It was a great people, and they weren't often defeated. But when they will be, de- they will be defeated, rather, within this prophecy, the other lands, the other peoples will be defeated. There's a promise here that the north will rejoice and its troubles be over. And that never really happened within history as we've lived it. There will be victory as darkness becomes light and it will be signaled by a birth. He will be born from humanity, verse 6, but be a gift from God. His shoulders will bear the responsibility of government. He will be known for wisdom, might, father-like, tenderness, peace, and therefore fulfillment. His kingdom will increase and he will reign on the throne promised to David with the promises that Ahaz refused to trust. All of that is much bigger than the Old Testament ever contained. But we know the answer to it, some of it. Because, of course, it's still not fulfilled. Justice and peace and righteousness are still aspects of faith more than they are of sight. I'm very conscious coming to the end of this that you probably walked in, as most of us do, concerned on a Sunday night for health, job security, relationships. And there are no promises in all of Isaiah 7 through to Isaiah 9, not a single promise about any of those. But this does tell us how faith works, how it worked in the days of Isaiah. How it worked in the days of Jesus, the part fulfillment of what we've heard promised to us in chapter 9, and then now. We have seen a great deal fulfilled. What's there in 7 and 8 has been fulfilled. We have seen that happen. And so in confidence, because of the promises that have been fulfilled, we can wait and pray for those not yet fulfilled, and do so with the right kind of expectation, when we discover sin among the people of God, we're not going to be thrown. Even when we find it in ourselves, we're not going to be thrown by it. We're not going to be thrown when the whole church of God seems to take a wrong turn. We don't say at that point, well, we must have made a mistake. Rather, we know that God has had and always will have a remnant whom he challenges to wait and trust And rely on him to fulfill his promises. And I suggest that that is the most practical response, even to health and wealth and the relationships. Because the world around us, which puts all its faith in the same things that Ahaz did, the politics of Egypt and uh, Assyria and, and Syria and Galilee and what have you. The world around us has thousands and thousands of reasons that stare us in the face why we might be wrong, why we might give up. And it seems to me the reasons are strong, particularly at the moment. But we do not give up because the promises remain written into the history, written down as the law and the testimony. The banner stands above us still. Emmanuel, God is with us. And so who can stand against us? Our God is with us. Emmanuel, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises of God that are uh, found for us in this person, the promise made flesh of Emmanuel. And we ask that as we go back into our daily world, with all its anxieties, with all its reasons that the world looks so much more stable and certain of itself than we sometimes feel. Give us confidence, we pray. Simple, resting, waiting confidence in all that Emmanuel will be for us. Amen.